I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program is Mr. Andrew Feinstein talking about the global arms trade. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, technological advances have often been driven by the armaments necessary for war. And though perhaps not the oldest profession, arms dealing continues to play an integral and controversial role in global politics and economic affairs. Yet the shadowy world of arms dealing has rarely received much scrutiny until now. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Andrew Feinstein. Mr. Feinstein is currently an Open Society Institute Fellow and founding co-director of Corruption Watch in London, author of after party his latest release the shadow world inside the global arms trade explores this issue for a uh, general audience and uh, mr feinstein i'm really pleased to have you on the program but uh, thank you for joining us thank you so much for having me i'm happy to be with you uh, how did you actually become interested in this uh, topic <laughs> <laughs> well not by choice i have to tell you oh. i i was actually an anc member of parliament in south africa that's obviously nelson mandela's um party that that he led in the first South African democratic elections. I was elected in those elections and became a member of parliament. And under Mandela's successor, um, I was the ranking member on the main financial oversight committee. And we received a report from our equivalent of the inspector general about a, an arms deal that um, will cost the country around $10 billion for weapons that South Africa neither needs nor really uses. And the report suggested there was significant evidence of corruption in this deal. Ultimately, we started investigating it and discovered that about $300 million of bribes had been paid to the defense minister who made the decisions on the deal, his political advisor, the head of purchasing in in the the military, um, and all sorts of other senior politicians and officials, and sadly, my own political party, the ANC itself. And I, I tried to continue to investigate it and was then warned off ultimately by the presidency in South Africa that the matter will be dealt with internally within our political party rather than publicly in parliament, um, a situation that I was not at all comfortable with, so I refused and was eventually ejected from the committee that I ran and then forced to quit Parliament. So completely unintentionally, but that's what got me writing my first book, which was an expose of that deal and its consequences for South Africa's very young democracy. And I became interested not only in those who had been corrupted, but also in those who do the corrupting. So when I moved from South Africa to the United Kingdom, where I, where I now live, um, I was fortunate in that people who had been investigating the arms trade for a long time, whistleblowers within the arms trade, investigators, prosecutors, journalists, all approached me um, as a result of my work in South Africa. And this gave me the network 
to to put something together on the global trade. And I was astonished to discover that there hadn't been a book on the global arms trade um, in over two decades. So, so that intrigued me and, and really drove um, the research for this book, for The Shadow World. And certainly the global arms trade has been ongoing for years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what's changed? No, I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. You know, I start The Shadow World with a, a short story about um, the first of, of the sort of the modern arms dealers, a chap called Basil Zaharov. Um, who, who we think was of Greek birth and was soon selling weapons to his own country, Greece, and then very quickly also sold to the sworn enemy, Turkey. Um, and, and he really provided the template for the modern arms dealer, the, the dealer who sells to all sides in a conflict, um, who will pretty much take money from anyone who's willing to pay for his wares, who is willing to bribe and corrupt, who becomes friends of key politicians, um, uses the media very effectively to stoke conflict um, and, and tends to oppose peace. And the sadness is that um, not a great deal has changed, and this is what I find so extraordinary. You know, currently, from um, research that I did with someone at Transparency International, um, we managed to compile figures from national treasuries, from intelligence agencies, and the arms trade, which accounts, which has sales of, on average, um, about $60 billion a year, and this is the formal trade in arms, the government-to-government -government trade, accounts for around 40% of all corruption in all world trade. So clearly, not that much has changed, very sadly. And that's only the legal aspects of arms dealing, the sort of underworld, who knows the extent of that. Well, no, we don't. I mean, what the book does is it tries to give some flavor of that underworld, the sort of what is called the black, sometimes the gray trade, the illegal trades in arms. Um, and I suppose what, what really astonished me about that, because I really started writing the book with the intention of almost two separate narratives, of um, a narrative on the formal trade dealing with, you know, the huge mega defense contractors, Lockheed Martin, um, BAE Systems, the big British company that's one of the top three um, defense contractors in the world, and, um, and then a separate narrative of the sort of darker underworld. But I found the linkages between the two are so profound and so myriad that, in fact, the narrative became as much about this intertwining of the so-called formal trade or clean trade with this, this dark black trade um, in weapons. And, you know, very current example, um, Victor Boot, the, the Russian who is sometimes described as the merchant of debt, um, who was convicted of gun running a few weeks ago in a New York court. Um, while he, he was out, and th th there was an Interpol warrant, a sort of an international police warrant, out for his arrest for, for nine years. And during that period, that this warrant was out for his arrest while he was incredibly active in the illegal trade in arms. Turns out between 2003 and 2005, he made tens of millions of dollars flying equipment, ammunition, weapons um, into Baghdad for the United States Department of Defense and, and the U.S. defense contractor. And, and this is just one indicative example of, of the interrelationship between between the formal trade and the black market. 
and really the formal trade really has no problems with the illegal market as it just really helps their business along as well. That's exactly the point. It actually does help their business because the fact that this illegal trade exists means that their products have a far longer life than would otherwise be the case. It means that there's far greater demand for their products. And also, they're very keen to use these illicit dealers to um, to grease the wheels of, of their own mega deals. So you often find that, you know, on the South African deal that I referred to, in which BAE Systems was the main defense contractor, they used a man as their covert agent on the deal, the guy who, who really paid the commissions, what are often bribes, um, in the deal, they used a guy who has been supplying Robert Mugabe with weapons for years and years and years and has been on U.S. and E.U. financial sanctions lists as a consequence of that. Um, so, so they're really happy to work interchangeably, um, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to raise these issues of the trade in weapons, because I think it often does an enormous disservice to the taxpayers who land up funding this stuff. It results in national security choices that aren't always bolstering our national defense and our national security. Um, and it also leads to huge wastage of money at a time where taxpayer dollars are something of a premium. And as you mentioned, there really is very little oversight in, into this particular area in most countries in, in terms of the arms dealing, where it's done, or who's being held accountable for it. Well, well again, I found myself absolutely amazed. Not only is it a, a very underregulated area of commerce, especially when one thinks that, you know, we do tend to regulate quite heavily those sorts of areas of activity that are regarded as harmful, you know, if we think of uh, tobacco or alcohol or even um, drugs and pharmaceuticals, these are highly regulated areas. But the, um, but the, the trade in weapons is, is incredibly under-regulated. And even where, in instances where there are national laws, where there are regulations, sometimes multilateral agreements, these are very seldom enforced with, with any sort of rigor at all. And, and perhaps the most astounding thing I discovered is that the Pentagon, which, um, because it's worth mentioning that the United States, in terms of, of defense spending, spends almost as much as the rest of the world combined, um, and the vast majority of it goes through the Pentagon. But the Pentagon itself, the biggest spender in the U.S. government, the biggest employer in the U.S. government, and therefore probably one of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest, hasn't been audited for well over 20 years and recently informed Congress that it will again miss a deadline that was imposed for the Pentagon to be ordered ready by 2014, but hopes to be ordered ready by 2017. So the very basic checks and balances are simply not in place. And, and then this was another area of great concern to me. And it just winds up costing the taxpayers an untold amount of money in terms of buying things that we really don't need. Exactly. I mean, the situation at the moment in the, in, in the U.S., the best example of this is the F-35 fighter jet, which is going to cost the American taxpayer um, over $382 billion, and probably 25% more than that by the time it's actually manufactured. Um, and this is a jet that a number of um, former Pentagon aerospace engineers, 
and Pentagon insiders have described as virtually irrelevant to the sorts of conflict that the, that the U.S. finds itself engaged in today and is likely to be engaged in for a few generations to come. You know, it would have been very useful in a Cold War scenario, but that scenario is, is long gone, for better or worse. But the jet is being produced at massive expense to the taxpayer, and this is a, a consequence of a strange circle of patronage that exists in the U.S. defense procurement system, where an enormous number of senior Pentagon officials um, at retirement go and work for the defense contractors to whom they've spent their careers giving contracts. So in 2010, for example, 84% of retiring generals at the Pentagon went to work for defense contractors in senior executive positions. So obviously they want to build relationships with these companies and retain those relationships. At the same time, lawmakers who have to approve these weapons projects receive very generous campaign contributions from the defense contractors and their employees, and in addition to which, they are promised job creation in their districts or the states which they represent. And even though in some instances in these weapons projects where jobs are put in virtually every congressional district in the country, some of these jobs are literally two or three people sitting around a table doing nothing in particular. But because those two entities, which are so crucial in, in, in the U.S. government's process, plus the defense contractors themselves, um, thrive and benefit from these contracts, they are prepared to push through weapons projects and weapons systems that might not be that appropriate for national security um, at the moment, but which continue to oil the wheels, if I can use that, um, that phrase, um, and therefore are pushed through. And again, I say that you know those who lose out are the taxpayers who are footing the bill for this and who are expecting meaningful um, defensive equipment where that's not always the case. It certainly wouldn't be a problem if, in fact, it was serving the national interest and the national defense, but in some ways it's oftentimes counterproductive. We, we wind up selling weapons to, to the enemy just to make a buck well, in a way. This, unfortunately, these, these are you know, what are called the unintended consequences of the arms trade, the, the blowback, if you will. And here, the most classic example is obviously the Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 80s, who were massively funded through CIA black operations with the support of, of a former congressman who passed away recently, Charlie Wilson. Um, who exponentially increased the amount of money and the sophistication of equipment going to the Mujahideen. And um, he continued to do this, even when quite a lot of evidence was shown to him that the Mujahideen were becoming more and more militant, were becoming anti-America, anti-the West. But these flows of weapons continued. And after the tragedy of, of 9-11, Wilson's biographer talks about how the former congressman who was then working as a lobbyist, um, literally drank himself into a stupor for weeks because whenever he was even slightly sober, he had to acknowledge to himself that the huge tragedy had, in his words, started in my mountains, started with my mudj, which is how he referred to the mujahideen. And we see these sorts of consequences even today. You know, the, the Arab Spring... Um, 
the situation arose where countries of the European Union, the United States, the, the NATO allies, along with Russia, provided um, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in Libya with huge amounts of weaponry after 2003. In fact, so much weaponry that he couldn't actually use a lot of it because he didn't have the personnel to operate it. So an enormous amount of this stuff found its way into warehouses where it was stockpiled. Um, and when the transition started to take place, the NATO bombings in support of the rebels in Libya first had to destroy the very weaponry that NATO countries had sold to Gaddafi. And then we saw the situation where the warehouses were left unguarded and a lot of the equipment, some of it highly sophisticated, surface-to-air missiles, for instance, have already found their way onto the world's weapons black market where they can effectively be bought by anybody who can come up with the cash, regardless of their agendas. And so, you know, the very real fear that these things, which can take down even commercial jet airliners, let alone um, military jets, could be used against, you know, those of us living in the countries who actually built this stuff and provided it to Gaddafi. It's sort of a troubling situation. I mean, are there any efforts underway, any governments really trying to focus on this issue? Well an initiative at the moment that I think is very important and could give some hope, and that is um, the United Nations is currently negotiating an international arms trade treaty. Now, there is a possibility here that it could be an extremely weak treaty, which would effectively simply give a seal of approval to the status quo in the arms trade as it currently um, takes place. But there is also the opportunity, if the, the, the political will um, can be developed, to ensure that weapons are not sold into any situation where human rights situations might be worsened, where conflict situations could be intensified, where socioeconomic development might be badly undermined. Um, but also, it could include significant anti-corruption measures, forcing the industry to become more transparent. Because what happens at the moment is um, everything that happens in the industry happens behind a veil of national security-imposed secrecy. And obviously, you know, many elements of these sorts of deals do need to be kept from the public domain. But unfortunately, what is effectively criminal conduct is also being hidden by this veil of secrecy. And so simply by making more transparent the role of middlemen or agents or dealers, as they're sometimes called, in, in these transactions, um, having to make public what they're paid for exactly what sort of work would make a huge difference in terms of the amount of corruption um, that takes place in, in this industry. So, you know, quite, quite small measures in, in theory could have a huge impact. But what is required is the political courage and the political will from enough political leaders in enough countries for this to find a place in this legislation. And partly this is why I've written the book, to try not only to reveal what is happening, but also in the hope that, that ordinary citizens might feel that they don't want their tax dollars being used 
um, sometimes counterproductively like this, that they don't want weapon systems created um, that are of, of little value to the country, that they don't want their tax dollars involved in what are sometimes very corrupt dealings, and that they will exert pressure on their elected representatives um, for, for the government to take a strong stance in, in negotiations around an arms trade treaty, because the reality is that if we allow this trade in weapons to continue as it currently does, we're effectively saying that what is being done in our name with our tax dollars is okay, even if it makes, as it does, the world a poorer place, often a less democratic place, certainly a more corrupt place, and sometimes even, ironically, a more dangerous place. It certainly is a very politically volatile issue. I mean, as as you mentioned, you know, firsthand, I mean, what really do you think is the likelihood that uh, any legislator will sort of put their political neck on the line to try and tackle this? <laughs> well, you know, let me tell you, having um, having battled this issue in the, in the context of South Africa for over a decade now um, and seeing various attempts at investigations and other things constantly undermined, um, I'm, I'm not hugely hopeful. Um, I think that it's going to be a long battle um, to try and see change in this arena. I think that it's going to take an enormous amount of pressure on, um, on politicians before we actually see anybody prepared to take a position on these issues, because it's simply not in what I would define as their very narrow um, political interests at the moment. But, you know, the reality is, as, as, as Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, once said, history is changed by small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens, and it has always been thus. And what I'm hoping to do with the book is at least start the process of getting these issues um, more prominently focused upon in the media, um, discussed more by, by ordinary citizens, um, so that so that they um, they might raise the issue more with elected representatives and make it a political issue. I was even I I went so far as as, as to speak at um, at Occupy Wall Street um, when I was in the states um, a week or so ago. Um, to try and point out to people that um, some of the things that they're very concerned about in the financial sector are contributed to by by some of these defense issues, that the amount spent, I mean, the U.S. during 2010 spent over a trillion dollars on national security. And while a lot of that is absolutely essential, there is an enormous amount of money within that sum that is not being well spent, that is finding its way into the darker crevices of the arms trade, that is being used in a very wasteful way for weapons projects that are currently not necessary um, and that only really assist that small circle of patronage that I mentioned. So, you know, I'm fully aware that this is something that it is going to take a long time and to get back into the public imagination and to make a political issue out of it again. But because of the impact that I saw that this trade has on my own home country, South Africa, it's something that I'm extremely passionate about and extremely committed to doing. And in the South African context, you know, when we were spending $10 billion 
on weapons, um, our then president, Thabo Mbeki, was telling the country that we couldn't afford to buy the antiretroviral medication for the over five and a half million of our people living with HIV or AIDS. And in the five or so years after the arms deal was signed, Harvard University conducted a study that estimated that 355,000 South Africans died avoidable deaths in that period simply because they could not access antiretroviral medication through the public health system, and they were too poor to buy it for themselves. So this trade, besides obviously its impact on, on conflict and the perpetuation of conflict, has huge other human costs as well. And it also, in my opinion, it, it, it corrodes our democracies. It, it undermines the rule of law in our countries. And so it is an issue that I think has, has impact far more widely than, than one would instinctively think. As you point out, it is a um, global issue in you know, countries like China and India. You would guess that perhaps influencing those governmental regimes would be much more difficult given the, the sort of the lack of democracy there. Look, I do think one of the emerging trends in, in the weapons trade is undoubtedly the emergence of China. While it spends a much smaller amount, um, less even than 20% of what the U.S. spends, on, on defense, on, on weaponry. Um, it is nevertheless becoming a very important player in the trade, um, often using weapons um, to gain influence in the regions in, in which it is interested. You know, we've seen over recent years an enormous amount of Chinese weaponry finding its way into conflicts on the African continent, for instance, um, and so this is clearly an important issue. And yes, you know, the, the standards of transparency, um, of commitment to human rights are very different to, to what we might be used to or what we would like to see. Similar case with Russia, for instance. And then you, you mentioned some of the emerging countries, and India and Brazil would be the most important of those. These are countries whose economies have modernized very quickly and whose spending power has increased greatly. And unfortunately, what tends to accompany that um, is significant increases in spending on military equipment and weaponry, and also an increased desire to start producing um, military material and, and equipment. And we're certainly seeing that in the case of both China and, in, and India currently. So not only are there traditional established challenges and issues um, in relation to the arms trade, but unsurprisingly, there are constantly new emerging issues and challenges um, that we have to face and, and try and address. But I think what is crucial is that those countries who, who really dominate the trade, um, the U.S., the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Sweden, interestingly, um, that they take a moral lead so that pressure is brought to bear upon those countries who might not act with the same levels of democracy, transparency, um, commitment to human rights and other things um, in other parts of the world, because otherwise the situation, unfortunately, is only going to get worse and worse, not better. Indeed, indeed. Lead by example, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially on an issue that is as important as this. Hmm.
Well, the new book is called The Shadow World, Inside the Global Arms Trade. And uh, Mr. Feinstein, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grok Science Show. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really good talking. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>